Welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. On this episode, our family pastor, J.C. Thompson, continues in a series on the heroes of faith of Hebrews 11. If you want to watch this video message or listen to this week's worship set, just go to our website, brookwoodchurch.org, or on our Brookwood Church app. We pray this message encourages you in your walk with Christ. morning. Y'all doing all right today? Good. Doing well. Thank you for allowing me to be here today. My name's J.C. Thompson. I'm the family pastor here. I'm continuing our series entitled Believing God. We've been surveying Hebrews chapter 11 called the Hall of Faith, the Heroes of Faith, the chapter after Hebrews 10, whatever you call it, uh, that's what we're talking about today. Uh, and we have been kind of talking through one or uh, maybe a concept. Today, we won't be talking about just one person. We won't just be talking about two people. We're going to be talking about three people. In fact, we'll be covering about 437 years of Jewish history and what that means for our faith as followers of Jesus in hopefully about 40 minutes. Uh, so 400 years, 40 minutes, you know, we'll, we'll go quickly. Uh, but if you're, if you got your Bible with you, if you've got it on your phone, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll be starting in verses uh, 20. We'll be just covering three verses, 437 years in three verses. I should be able to do four, 40 minutes. That should be good. Should be, hopefully. Jesus help us. Um, we have been talking in this series about the patriarchs of faith, and today is no different. We'll be covering three men today. Uh, their names are Isaac, uh, who we heard a little bit about uh, as he was being sacrificed by his father, uh, and uh, we'll be learning about his son, one of his sons named Jacob, and then one of Jacob's sons named Joseph. You know, what's interesting is, as you walk through each of these men's lives, there's plenty to talk about when it comes to faith for each of them. But the author of Hebrews centers on one kind of aspect for all three of these men, and it is when they are nearing death. How do these men exercise their faith as they face death? And for me, what is it specifically that the author of Hebrews wants us to notice, wants us to know about men, about women when they face death? What does their faith look like? You know, it's said that death can be very clarifying. It removes obstacles. It removes those things that we've spent our life building. We've spent conversations um, possibly hiding and death has a way of bringing out our priorities like few things can. And so I think it's, it's good for us to look at these three men and see in them how did they exercise their faith as they were nearing death. And as we've, we've kind of talked about, the message today is called the perseverance of faith. 2020 is definitely testing our perseverance. I don't, I don't know about you, but... Uh, not just what we're dealing with with coronavirus, obviously that's a significant part, but 
There have been many people who've struggled. We've, we've lost loved ones this year. And it seems like this year is just dragging along. You know, every, every week it, it just seems like, man, just hurry up. Let's, let's, just, let's just go. Let's just move. And maybe that's the, the younger person in me. Um, maybe that's just my immaturity when it comes to my faith. Um, but I'm, I'm ready. You know, I'm ready to see what's on the other side of this. But I, I think it's important for us to understand that when things take longer, it tends to reveal things that maybe something very short-lived could not reveal about us. So I think it's important as we're struggling through perseverance for us to see, for us to understand what, what's God trying to say to us. Now, these men, their faith centers around a promise that God gave to their father, their grandfather, their great-grandfather named Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It's this promise. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I'll show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. This is the promise that each of these men that we'll hear about today place their faith in, the promise from God that God was making a covenant with Abram. Now, that covenant included a few things. It included possession of the land of Canaan, the, the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abram. It also included a promise that God would make the descendants of Abram great. And those men that, that are resting on that promise, they're, they're a part of that promise. They, they are the recipient of that promise. And God also promised that his descendants would be a blessing to the entire world. Each of these men trusted God with the promise that he had given to their father, Abram. And their faith proved true even until the end of their life. Now, this principle that I hope that we can draw out of this text today is actually found in Philippians, uh, and that's our memory verse today. It's Philippians 1.6, and it just says this, and I'm certain that God, who began the good work in you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Now, while we cling to the promise of this verse, and I most certainly have come back to this verse over and over as I look at my life and the struggle and the immaturity and, and the things that I wish were different, the closer I get to Christ, the more I see the things that are lacking in my heart and in my life. As we cling to that promise, we must also understand that that faith is not just faith by definition or name. That faith is a faith that is found in obedience to Christ. And the faith that we're looking at today is a faith that perseveres until the end. That is a faith that can be trusted. That is a faith that can be trusted. A faith that perseveres is a faith that can be trusted. We must persevere in our faith as God continues his work in us. Now, what does faith that persevere, what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, we'll see here today that a faith that perseveres embraces the will of God, embraces the will of God. Hebrews eleven twenty says this, it was by faith that Isaac promised blessings for the future to his sons, Jacob and Esau. Like Sarah, Abram's wife, Rebekah was also barren. 
But Isaac and Sarah had prayed to the Lord, asking for a son, and God blessed them, not with just one son, but with two, with twins. Now, if you know the story of Jacob and Esau, you know that even in the womb, there was some conflict between these two brothers. Now, I've got two little boys at my house, and me and my wife probably over the last seven days have said more than seven times, it seems like all they do is fight with each other. Now, that's, that's my kids. Jacob and Esau were fighting literally inside of their mother's womb, the Scripture says. In fact, it, it says this, uh, God spoke directly about these children to Rebekah because she was feeling the conflict inside of her. She was feeling these boys not getting along. And she prayed and inquired of the Lord, God, what is going on inside of me? What is happening? And it says this, but the two children struggled with each other in her womb, so she went to ask God about it, which I think is just so enlightening Something's going on inside. The first step that she takes is going, God, I have been barren. I don't know what it's like to be pregnant, so I don't know if this is normal or not. But what in the world is going on? What is happening? And the Lord said this, the sons in your womb will become two nations. And from the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals with one another. You thought that you have sibling rivalry at your house? You've got no idea of what rivalry looks like. One nation will be stronger than the other. And check this out. Your older son will serve your younger son. Now, this prophecy found itself true in many ways, not just at the end of their life, but all throughout their life, including their time in their mother's womb. These men, these young men, they struggled against one another. Here, here's, here's one aspect of this. is Genesis 25, verse 20, 27 through 28. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful, skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman. But Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. You can see every aspect of their life seemed to be opposed to each other. This son loved to spend time outdoors. This son wanted to be outside. This son was a skilled hunter. This son wanted to be quiet. They struggled with one another. Isaac loved Esau. Why did he love Esau? Because he enjoyed eating the wild game that Esau brought home. But Rebekah loved Jacob. That seems like quite the dysfunctional family to me. Mom has a favorite. Dad has a favorite. They're different. We see a little peek into who Isaac is at this point in that he loves meat. And loves his son because his son brings him delicious meat to eat. Now, no, there's no doubt that Isaac would have known this prophecy that God himself had given to his wife. He would have known. You, you had to know that this was obviously a conversation. As, he, as, as Rebecca would have explained this, she would have said, Hey, listen, God just told me these two guys, they're not going to get along. And they're going to actually form two nations. And the younger one will serve the older. There's, there's no way that she would have kept that a secret. But Isaac, his physical flesh, caused him to favor Esau, while his mother favored Jacob the younger, more than likely centering around the promise that God had given to her. 
Now, Esau despised his birthright. Now, there's probably a little bit because he may have known about this prophecy. He may have known that he was going to serve the younger. And as we'll find out later, when a younger brother knows that he's going to be in charge of his older brother, that doesn't usually go well, especially when that comes from God. Could you kind of see, I, I mean, you guys know kids, right? They don't usually use those things to hurt someone, right? They would never do that. They would never use the promise of God to hurt somebody, right? You guys know any kids? Would they do that? 100%. I mean, all the time. They would even take things that are true. Hey, you know I'm mom's favorite. You know I'm mom's favorite. You know that that had to be a part of their relationship. It had to be a part of this struggle. So Esau despised his birthright. See, he was a man who was living in rebellion against God. In fact, he gave his birthright to his brother for what? Anybody remember? A bowl of soup. Now, I'll be honest with you. You can write me emails or comments about this, whatever. But soup is not, it's not at the top of my list. Maybe soup was different back then. But I don't look at soup and I'm like, ooh, soup. <laughs> Maybe, maybe I can do, maybe I can get rid of this for a bowl of soup. No, I mean, uh, you know, but maybe it was a really good soup. I, you know, I don't know. But he sold his future inheritance for a bowl of soup. And not only that, but he also was going against his mother and father's wishes. He married outside of his family. He would have married people who were in rebellion to God. And he married two women, two Hittites, the Bible says. And the Bible also says they made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah. This rivalry finds its climax in the scene that the author of Hebrews describes here when he says he gave blessing to both of his sons. See, Isaac felt that he was near death. Something in him said, hey, I'm about to die. Just side note, he lived for 43 years after he thought he was about to die. So, you want to talk about perseverance, that's some perseverance right there, right? He kept going for another 43 years. After this interaction with Jacob and Esau, after the blessing that he's about to give to them, he lived for 43 years after that. This incredible scene that we have in Scripture shows the sinfulness of all four members of the family. There is no one in this story doing the right thing according to God. No one other than God himself. Isaac, who intended to bless his firstborn Esau against the wishes of God, and Jacob and Rebekah, who deceived Isaac because he couldn't see very well. I mean, and they went, they didn't just deceive him. Like, this wasn't just like he wore a different name tag, okay? Like, they had some goat hair that they put on him. They made him smell different. They made him cook food the way that his brother would have cooked food. I'm imagining he did an impersonation of the voice of his brother. And it wasn't very good because you kind of see in the story a little bit, like, the dad is like, are you sure that's you? You sound a little bit like your brother. And so you see this horrible deception. And not only that, but Esau. Esau didn't want his birthright in the first place. He didn't want any of that. And so we see every member in this story caught in sin. And while Rebekah and uh, her son Jacob trusted the promise of God, 
They did not trust God that he would bring it about in his own timing. And Isaac fought against God, not willing to give the younger son the blessing that God said that he would have because he liked good meat. But Isaac's faith is revealed. It's seen here in a few ways. First of all, his blessing to his son centered around the covenant promise of his father, Abraham. While Isaac meant for the blessing to be given to Esau himself, it still came from the inspiration from God, which Isaac applied in faith. This is faith for us. Sometimes we say things that are sinful and wrong and the method in which we do them, and God still turns them around for blessing. God still got his way even though Isaac intended to bless the incorrect son. Isn't that funny how that works sometimes in us? We'll say something. You know, you, you see stories about this in, in sports or in business where somebody said so, something so hurtful and so harmful, and that was the motivation to make this person become great. You know, our words carry meaning. We talk about in student ministry all the time that saying, sticks and stones will hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me, is false. It's a complete fabrication. But yet God can even use our words to bring him glory, to turn them around for someone's good. So Isaac or Jacob received the blessing from his father, even though it was intended for his brother. Deceptively, he received it. Now, Isaac ended up blessing both of his sons because as Esau comes back into the picture, he said, Dad, where's my blessing? I'm back. I've brought you the food that you've asked for. Where's my blessing? And at that moment in time, Isaac realizes what has happened. He realizes that God functionally, faithfully proved his promise to be true, and he realized that he had been deceived by his son. But his response is faith. It's not desperation. It's not frustration. It's an understanding God really is in charge. Even when I fight against it, even when I rebel, God is still in charge. And so he blesses his son Esau. He gave Esau, he gave Jacob something, the promise that he gave him was something that neither one of them would possess. Even Joseph would not possess the promise fully that God had given to his father Abraham. But he blessed it, faithfully trusting that God would bring it to fruition for his son. Isaac trusted that God would not forget his promises and he would be faithful to his family. Now, he blessed Esau, and the blessing that he gave to Esau was temporal in nature, that he would eventually get out from under his brother's foot, that he would, again, be a great nation as God had prophesied to his wife, Rebekah, and he blessed him with those things. And the things that he blessed Esau with after knowing for sure that this is Esau must have been from time that Isaac had spent with God to know those were the things that God was willing for his son Esau. It didn't come empty-handed. It came from a relationship who loved his son and wanted to know, what does God want for my son Esau? Now, while we do not confer, affirm Isaac's passivity or his rebellion to God in blessing his son Esau more than Jacob, 
even though Jacob received that blessing, nor do we affirm that Jacob or Rebekah should have done what they did in deceiving their husband and father. God's will still prevails. God will bless whom he blesses. What has God promised to you? What's God promised to you? And are you willing to wait on God to accomplish it? Or are you trying to manipulate the answer to God's promise so that it will come on your timing instead of God's? Not only does a faith that perseveres embrace the will of God, but it also establishes blessing to the future generations. Hebrews eleven twenty one. It was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. Jacob was the son of Isaac. He was quite similar to his father in many ways. His faith was certainly up and down, and yet Jacob had these incredible moments with God. He negotiated with God. He also had a time where he acknowledged God's blessing on his life as he built an altar. He praised God when he received the dream of the heavenly ladder, and he was so driven to receive God's blessing that he wrestled with him all night long. But instead of any of these things, the author of Hebrews mentions two things that Jacob did by faith. First, Jacob blessed each of Joseph's sons. This story is found in the beginning, uh, uh, or actually at the end of Genesis 47, and runs through the start of Genesis 49. And I just want to make a couple observations about this particular blessing that happens. First of all, we get special insight into checking out this blessing in these few chapters of someone who is literally moments from death, like moments. He died right after this instance that we see in Scripture. His dying is both a summary of his life, but also a reinforcement of those things that he prioritized. At the end, Jacob made sure to do and to talk about and to reinforce those things that were most important to him. He also expressed the covenant that God had made with Abraham, that he had renewed with his father Isaac, and then had also been passed on to him, his son. And he was passing that covenant promise on to Joseph's children. He spoke of God's gracious provision in his life daily. He also recounted the difficulties and trials of his faith. He especially reflects on his encounter with the angel or Christ that, we, that he wrestled with and kept him from evil. In other words, he had a life of faithfulness, but he highlighted these special moments with God that he had as he's sharing with his family, this is what matters to me. Jacob blessed both of Joseph's children, both of his sons, but he gave the greater blessing to Ephraim, the younger son. Joseph was frustrated by this, which is interesting because Joseph, that's his story. That's his father's story. I'm not sure why necessarily Joseph is frustrated by that. At this point in time, you would have thought Joseph would have just understood, hey, birth order, maybe not is just this thing. Maybe it's what God says. Maybe that's the emphasis. So he actually tries to reverse his father's hands in blessing, thinking he's too close to the end. Maybe he doesn't know what he's doing. 
And his dad just says, hey, son, I know what I'm doing. This is what God wants. And he had crossed his hands. See, Jacob had clearly spent time, even recently before his death, with God. And he knew exactly what God wanted him to say to his family before he passed. It's amazing that death did not make things cloudy for Jacob, but instead it made things very clear. He knew how to share the blessing, and when he was nearing death, I think it's important for us to understand that even as we get older, 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 God is not done sharing new insights with us. The second thing in this story is that Jacob bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. Now, I just thought that was interesting. Like, why would the author of Hebrews talk about him leaning on his staff? Now, if you go back to the story, there's actually no mention of a staff. In fact, it mentions the bed. Now, there's debate over, is the bed what the author here means in Hebrews? Now, that's kind of a common phrase when you'd be nearing death as you'd come to the head of the bed. But I, I think the picture here is twofold, that the, the author... In Genesis, Moses is giving you a picture of Jacob coming to his bed as he's nearing the end. So he's blessed his children, and he's coming back, and he's about to worship God. And so in Genesis, it talks about Jacob kneeling, laying in the head of the bed to worship God. Hebrews talks about the staff. So here's the picture that I think these authors are showing. It is one hand grasped on the bed, one hand on his staff, and he is doing whatever it takes to get him to get down and worship God one last time. See, Hebrews is saying there would have been physical reason for Jacob not to have bowed or gotten into a posture of worship. But even his physical infirmity, nearing death, would not stop him from not just worshiping God, but modeling for his family who is in the room observing him, even death will not keep me from worshiping God. See, that's an outward posture of an inward attitude of the heart. Jacob couldn't fully get on the ground to worship on his own, so he used whatever he could around him to bow to his father. And he did what his body would allow him to do. See, I think we're starting to get a picture of why the author of Hebrews is grouping these men together as they come near to death. See, God had promised each of them that they would possess the land and that their family would have many descendants and that they would bless the entire world. And we see struggles of infertility that could bring in some doubt and fear. We see struggles of enemies' influence into these men's lives. We see family conflict that could cause issues in trusting the promise of God. And yet these men remain faithful even unto death. These men were not bitter for not being able to enjoy the promises that God had given them. Instead, they believed so strongly in these promises that they shared that with the next generation over and over and over again. Now, this idea of a blessing is not necessarily one that we practice in our culture. See, the blessing is kind of a twofold practice. It's both a prayer for our children, 
but it's also prophetic. Now, you may be thinking, well, JC, I'm not a prophecy. How can I prophesy over my children? Well, I'll just give you a little bit of insight. You spend some time with your kids. You spend some time in, with God in prayer about your kids. You gain some insight into them. As you were probably pregnant or in the process of adopting your children, you probably learned some things about what God was trying to show you about a child or about you as a parent. It is our job as parents to share with our children the story that God is writing. And he's always writing it. You know, it's one of the most wonderful things that I think we do here. And a lot of people don't even know that we do it. But we actually teach parents how to bless their children here. And we do that in a way where it's not like a class, like how to bless your children. But we actually do it in a stage of life where they don't even know what they're learning. They don't even get it. Parent-child dedication, when a baby is born, it's a one, listen, you want to get, get excited, you start to learn about parent-child dedication, and here's what we do in parent-child dedication. We don't bring children up to the front so everybody can see them and, and lay hands on them. In, in fact, we do it opposite of that. We have a smaller gathering, usually no more than five families, and we ask them to bring anybody who influences their life. Grandparents, aunts, uncles, neighbors, small group members, anybody who's an influence. And so there's still a lot of people there. But then the parents have homework. Their homework is to choose a life first for their child. Their homework is to write a letter to their child. Now, there's a baby. This baby doesn't know what this letter is about. The practice is for the parent to learn how to communicate the truth of God's love to their children. And then... We do this other event in middle school. In fact, you can learn about these on a resource that we've got called The Pathway. I think we got a picture of it up here. You can go to brookwoodchurch.org slash pathway. Tons of parenting resources. I know that looks like a board game, but if you click on any of those squares right there, you get parenting resources. Really cool. Um, but another event that we do is called Burly Girly, which again, it just sounds awesome. It's in middle school. You got kids. The guys do some, some guy things like throw axes, not at each other. That's dangerous. But at a Target, and they do that with their dads. And the ladies, they've got some activities that they do with their moms, painting nails, baking cakes, throwing axes sometimes, like whatever, whatever that looks like, right? Whatever the activity looks like. But the, the key is, again, what they're doing is they're walking through material together with their children, and then they are blessing them at the end and saying, here's what, I love, here's what I've seen about you, and here's why I'm excited about middle school. Here's why I'm excited about what God's doing. Here's what I'm f totally afraid of that's about to happen. And they're sharing that insight. That's blessing. And my dream scenario is, a parent walks through parent-child dedication and they have a letter that they wrote maybe before their child was born, maybe in the middle of their child being born, and they have their story. And then they get to middle school and they can compare the letter that they wrote as a child to the letter that they wrote as a middle schooler. And then they've got freshman dinner and then they've got senior night celebrating them. And then at that end, we see all their accomplishment. We see this future plan that they've got. And then they can look back and they go, here's the story God's been writing about you from the beginning. And now you're an adult who's about to go into whatever your next step is, man, do you see who God has made you to be? Not your mom and dad, even though we've had influence, God, God bless us, but you have been made and created by God in a specific way. It's our role as parents and adults 
even if they're not your children, to speak blessing over to the next generation. The promises of God are never meant to pass away with our life. We are supposed to pass them on to the next generation. We do this through loving God with zeal and passion, through training our children with the truth of God's word, and by sharing our personal story of God's blessing to us with them. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph all did this. While Isaac did this finally, maybe regretfully, submitting to the will of God near the end of his life, Jacob was able to see his son that he thought was dead, Joseph, whom he recognized a special call in his life early on, rise to power in a foreign land, experience the grace and provision of God, and eventually give forgiveness to his brothers who had sold him into slavery. Man, what a joyful experience to be able to share that with your children. To be able to share that with our young people. Here's what God's done in my life. How are you sharing the promises of God with your children or your grandchildren? Are you sharing your story of faith with Christ to them? A faith that perseveres also entrusts our future to Christ. Entrusts our future to Christ. It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. He even commanded them to take his bones with them when they left. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers. Why? Well, it was a response of frustration with a dream that God had given to Joseph. And I imagine, we know that Joseph shared it, but the Bible doesn't give us the tone all the time, but I'd imagine it was not like, man, you guys will never believe the dream I had. I mean, it's crazy. I'm sure it was a little more like, hey, guys, I know you're older than me, but one day you're going to bow down to me. Isn't that going to be cool? (laughs) I mean, I just imagine this, this instance. And do you think that the brothers were happy about that? Oh, come on. Do you think the brothers were happy about that? People online, do you think the brothers were happy about that? No, they were not happy about that. No, no one wants to be told by anybody, hey, you're going to bow down to me. Nobody, especially your younger brother. Are you kidding me? No. So they were frustrated. Now, did they do what they should have done when they were frustrated? No. They worked out a deal and they sold him into slavery. But Joseph's eagerness to share that dream with them, I'm sure, caused some frustration. But after that, God was gracious and present with Joseph as he faithfully fulfilled his role as a servant. He earned promotions. He earned trust. He resisted temptation from a promiscuous woman. He endured in prison even when people forgot him. He utilized his gift in interpreting dreams, and he faithfully stewarded the possessions and the responsibility given to him by Pharaoh. I love the story of Joseph, which covers so many chapters of Scripture because multiple times in that story, you know what the Bible says? And God was with Joseph. It's frustrating sometimes because it says, and God was with Joseph when he got into prison. 
and God was with Joseph when this lady lied about him and he got fired. And God was with Joseph when they forgot about him. It wasn't all the time when Joseph did something really cool that God was with him. God was with him both in blessing and in suffering. But I love that Scripture continues to remind us, if you read the story of Joseph, the entire thing in one sitting, you will see God is with him all the time. So while Joseph gained power and influence in Egypt, his heart remained focused on the promise that God had given to his family, starting with his great-grandfather, Abraham. Joseph spoke confidently when he was about to die through faith that the Israelites would soon find themselves in bondage and that one day they would leave Egypt and they would inherit the promised land that God had promised to them. He confirmed his faith in this promise by commanding them as he was rightfully in charge of his brothers to take his bones to the promised land and to bury them there. Even if physically he could not possess the land, Joseph would rather his bones be there and experience it in that way as a symbol that God fulfills his promises. One pastor put it this way, if Joseph couldn't possess the land, at least the land could possess Joseph. Through all that Joseph had accomplished and attained, he chose God's promise rather than the power, the influence, and ultimately the prize that Egypt would have offered to him as someone who faithfully completed their role unto death. See, he was number two in what was the most powerful nation in the entire world at that time. But his heart, his priority was on God's covenant and not what the promise of wealth, power, and influence could offer to him. Through all that Joseph had accomplished and attained, he chose the promise of God rather than the fruits of his production. Not only was Joseph for his own heart's fulfillment doing what he knew was the right thing to do, he was also doing this because he was in leadership. He was both opposing the Egyptians in what he did, but he was also providing support for the Israelites to make it through their journey. He wanted to make sure that even though he had acquired all this power, all this wealth, all this influence, that he reminded even the Israelites in slavery, none of that is as good as the promise fulfilled from God. And so his bones being present with them physically would have been a physical reminder that Egypt, success in Egypt, is not our goal. Our goal is receiving the promise that God has made to us. He did not want to be recognized as an Egyptian. He wanted to be known that he followed the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of of Isaac. So this was his final move to be removed from being honored by the Egyptians. You know, it's one of the things that we'll talk about is Moses. We don't know where Moses was buried. Moses was buried by God. Why? Because they would have worshipped Moses' bones. Well, the Egyptians would have worshipped the bones of Joseph. They would have made possibly statues or tombs honoring his life and accomplishment. And Joseph wanted to make sure that that did not happen. Second, he wanted to make sure that he provided hope 
to his brothers and his sons that God would answer their promise. His bones were their reminder. And lastly, this would have also been an honor to his dad who bought a portion of the land of Canaan to give to his sons as an inheritance. And this would have been just a slight nod from Joseph to his father to God's faithfulness and provision and blessing in their life. Is the life of God so meaningful, so concrete, so real to you that you truly do lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven? Or are you working for what we know will pass away? We must do this, not only at the time of our death, but we must daily be exercising our faith in Christ by being obedient to Him. And to those of you who may be suffering and struggling to find in, in you the strength, the courage to keep going, I, I just want to encourage you. That strength doesn't come from you. It comes from Christ. And Christ accomplished that for you. So when things get hard, when things get tough, when it's illness or infertility that you're struggling through or possibly unemployment or even this coronavirus, not knowing the future, the unknown, when you're struggling with those and you're going, God, how can I keep going? I I don't even know what to do. I, I don't know the next step to take. You don't try and draw strength from yourself. You just offer to God, God, I got nothing I don't know what to do next. I I don't know what 2020 has next for us. It's been crazy. God, what do you have for me? And you draw strength from Christ, your union, your relationship with him, and he supplies all that you need to keep going. Now, if you've got more of a struggle, if you've got something possibly physical or, or something that, that you just don't know how to shake, possibly some depression or overwhelming anxiety that you don't know how to walk through, then we've got people here that can help you take those steps and point you towards the riches available to you in Christ. But you've got to take that step. You've got to be willing to step out and go, I, I need help here. I need help. Who can help me know Christ? So if that's you, we've got counselors. We've got pastors out here on the side that you can go talk to. We also have counselors you can reach out to during the week. If you're watching this online, you can just go online and say, hey, I need to talk to somebody. Please help me. And someone will reach out and connect with you. Sometimes we all need help. We need assistance in getting us back to the promises of God. So don't hesitate to take that step. Listen, I know it's hard. You think for a second there's not events or programming or things that I was excited for families to experience this year that we've had to say no to or wait or postpone. It's tough. It's tough. And each of us have our own challenges that we're facing. We have got to rest in Christ's finished work and continue to draw on his resources so that we can continue to move forward in faith. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for 
this wonderful chapter in Hebrews that teaches us about faith. I, I pray, God, if If there's someone who needs help today, God, I pray that you will point them to just the exact right person or conversation that they need to have in order to be fully encapsulated in your love. God, we're, we're struggling. We want to be done. We want to be finished. God, don't allow us to get so far, our, our heads, our minds, our, our eyes, so far in the future that we miss what you're doing inside of us. But God, we, we want this to be done. And, and personally, God, I want all of it to be done. I want you to be back here. I don't, I don't want to see the struggle and the pain and the frustration anymore. I, I don't want to go through the conflict. I, I just want you back. So don't tarry. Don't wait. Jesus, come back. And until you do, supply us with what we need to keep going. And to bring glory to you, not just to make it, not just to scrape by, but God, to, to live lives full of peace and joy as we rest in your love. Thank you for our children. Help us not to grow bitter in the times that we're in, but to share that this world is a place where they can find love and satisfaction in Jesus and that they can make a difference in. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus you experience transform life. One of the ways you can do that is by getting connected at Brookwood. Email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call us at 864-688-8326 to get in contact with our Connections team. You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood Church app. Thank you for listening and have a blessed day.